0: Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Podcast. I'm your host, Jill Manoff, and this week we are shaking things up. Joining me is Danny Parisi, Glossy's senior fashion reporter and host of our Week in Review podcast, which hopefully you're checking out every Friday. What's up, Danny?
1: Hello, Jill. Thanks for having me on.
0: Excited to chat. Today, we are tackling a year in review, breaking down the biggest fashion stories of 2021. That includes resale's boom, digital fashions rise, and brand's new openness to getting in bed with competitors. We'll also be sharing our personal picks from the year's news stories because, of course, we like to have our fun. So, (laughs) Danny, you are, I would say, the in-house expert on all things resale. I'm calling it resale's big year would you what do you have to say about that would you agree
1: I absolutely agree so as you know I've covered a lot of resale stuff over the years and something I always always hear from the resale people is like oh yeah like the all the brands are they're just right on the edge of thinking that resale is totally cool and not hating it anymore and they're all just about to you know start supporting it and you know I, I wrote a story like two years ago about how the the primary market and the secondary market are going to merge together and all the brands are going to be interested in resale and stuff. And I think it took a while of saying that was about to happen, uh but this year I think it actually did finally happen. There was like just such a avalanche of brands like primary market brands like either working with a resale like platform directly or like making their own in-house resale pro- like I feel like it just exploded this year um i think was a a big mover in that they like threw ThreadUp, like crocs madewell adidas farfetch fabletics so many brands all started up their own resale programs most of them were like with ThreadUp or with some other you know provider who does the work behind the scenes but just you know I, i think i really think this was the year that everybody finally got on board
0: Agree. You mentioned a uh, thread up and their their resale as a service platform. Uh, their latest earnings said so they have more than two dozen partners now. Uh, I think the big competitor of theirs maybe in that space is Trove, which you've also written about. You know, some brands and retailers are tackling this on their own i know newly is doing so and you've you've spoken a lot about the challenge in doing so in terms of logistics and and the feasibility of that all it, it's more they they're linking with a partner to get this off the ground right
1: yeah absolutely i mean i believe it was uh andy rubin from trove who who explained this to me i was asking him why it's so rare for a brand to just make their own resale program from scratch and not work with somebody like Trevor ThreadUp And he was like, well, frankly, it's just so ridiculously expensive. Um, it's a, it's a lot of infrastructure that you need to set up. I think he, he estimated it probably costs like a couple million just to like start, um, you know, doing the, the main logistical thing is like, when you're selling through retail or when you're a brand, you could have a hundred or, or, you know, a thousand or 10,000 like copies of the same dress and, but it all goes under one listing in your, you know, sort of backend. It sells the same. It's like got quality control. So they're all exactly the same The resale. You could have a thousand different dresses and they're all separate listings, you know? And so that is just makes it infinitely more complex. And there's also the whole problem of getting those clothes in the first place. You have to process them. You have to authenticate them if you're doing like luxury or something, um, which is a whole other topic, authentication. Uh, it, it's just very complex, and I think even a really big brand is probably crunching the numbers and deciding that working with someone like ThreadUp and either sharing revenue or paying a cut of it to to them is worth it, just to not have to deal with the headache.
0: Absolutely, because we we're seeing even these platforms, multi-million dollar, billion dollar platforms that this is their specialty. They do this every day and they're trying to perfect it every day. They're so much money. Uh, they're fundraising left and right to to perfect this and to take it to the next level. They're not there yet. They need better authentication. They want to um, expand, expand their categories. Anyway, it, it's just let's let's talk about some of these highlights in terms of the money that's going into the space. I know that you reported on Grailed and their their round led by Goat Group, which was interesting, uh, particularly because we typically talk about them um, goat and Grailed as competitors. But one of the things that Grailed is is tapping goat for or or hopes to do with this round, is um, improve their content and their merchandising, which I would call GOAT, like the gold standard. They can definitely leverage their expertise. Um, We know that Rebag just this week, mid-December, announced $33 million, bringing the total to $101 million. Vestier Collective, which you also wrote about with SoftBank, $1.7 1.7 billion dollars valuation. Uh, what were some of the highlights? I guess, the, um, according to you, in terms of investment, and and what does it mean, if anything?
1: Well, I think maybe just because it's recent in my mind, but I talked to Lydia Jett, who's the managing partner of SoftBank yesterday, and we talked a lot about resale because um, she she heads up the Vision Fund, which is sort of their. I mean, they're gigantic, gigantic company, and they invest in all sorts of stuff. But the Vision Fund is kind of like supposed to invest in the future and things that they see as, you know, being whatever's gonna be like the biggest thing in whatever industry in the next couple of years. And so she said they on the one hand, they don't like to spread out their bets and they don't like to bet on an uncertainty. And so she said part of the reason they poured so much money into Vestiaire Collective, um, I think it was four hundred million dollars, was because they were already an established leader in that space. And I think that's true. Like you said, they're worth $1.7 billion, especially in luxury and especially in Europe. I think they, they're they they're a huge leader. And then on top of that, they just feel very confident that resale is, you know, they're seeing all the same things we're seeing. I wrote this in a story a couple of weeks ago that looking at what the Vision Fund is investing in is a is a good barometer of, you know, they've got thousands of analysts and stuff working on this. So I think it's a pretty safe bet that you know, whatever they're investing in, I think is going to be big and they're putting a lot of money into resale. So, um, that to me was notable, but yeah, like you said, there's, there's a lot of money going into resale right now. Rebag, I think is really interesting since they are, they've done a lot, like not just for themselves, but for resale and bags in particular, like across the whole category, they, they have that thing, Claire, that's sort of like a, supposed to be a platform agnostic just valuation tool for all handbags and you can kind of imagine fashion resale especially when it comes to like super high-end luxury super expensive stuff going the direction of like watches or even like cars where there's this super codified world of uh categorization and authentication and and strict valuation um like if you look at how watches are sold and have been sold where there's authorized dealers, there's papers that come with it, there's all this like authentication stuff. Um, I think that's a good indication of where something like bags or or other really high-end, really expensive products could go in the future.
0: Totally. I mean, what a year for watches. You've written about it a lot. Um, definitely a booming category. Such a web in terms of like resale and how it's catching on across across categories or across the market. Um, I also wrote about like My Teresa partnering with, with Vestier Collective, Farfetch with Thread Up, Netaporte with ReFlaunt. So, anyway, it, it only looks like it's booming. So many factors contributing to this. Um, I would say Gen Z and their, um, their affordability priority and also um, sustainability. Consumers kind of tightening their budgets during the pandemic. Also, investing in classics that won't go out of style. You don't have to wear the trend here and now. Um, and even some of these emerging designers' influences, Telfar. Brandon Blackwood, um, they're they're more affordable. So if brands aren't offering maybe a, a more affordable, it's not always more affordable, let's say that. But um, if they're not offering a different option, uh, maybe that's working against them. I, I don't know. What would you say other factors? Are we hitting on, is it all, is that all of that? And I, I maybe personally want to say like, and also there's kind of the blanding of fashion right now, everything sweats and comfort wear and I shop resale because you find sexier things.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a couple factors. I mean, the biggest one you already mentioned, and it's sort of the most boring, but like, there's no denying it is just if you can get really nice stuff for less money, like, that's a draw no matter what, you know, so I, I think affordability and price, like as much as well, it's not even that resellers like, deny that like they don't at all. But as much as they might want to play up like Environmental reasons and other like I do think price is probably the main one, um, but yeah, I, I also think a part of it is the move away from and maybe this is more consumer led away from like things being super seasonal or super like in right now and then out or something. Like I think there's a lot more freedom to wear something from five years ago, wear something from ten years ago, wear something from fifteen years ago, um, and not needing to only wear what came out in the very last season and then get rid of it or something, you know. Yeah. One, one that's wasteful, and I think a lot of people are against that. And I also think there's just less um, pretension about clothes. You know, people are like, hey, if you want to wear something from three years ago, which is like, t- I think traditionally that's like a little, it's too recent to be like back in, but it's like <laughs> too old to be like current. and And so that used to be i think a big faux pas and like it still is i think to some degree but i also think there's a lot more people who who don't care if it if it came out 5 years ago and it looks good you know there's nothing wrong with that and and so like you're saying if you don't like the stuff that's coming out right now like go go to the real real or something and find something from a couple years ago that works with your style and just do that you know and stuff moves so fast that it goes out of like the zeitgeist really quickly and kind of like can come back in more quickly as well.
0: You know what I mean? For sure. Maybe the last thing, working to the um, this space's advantage, like we saw Stella McCartney go there back in like 2017, a couple of years ago. Brands maybe started considering maybe we're not doing resale on the sly, but now we're also seeing well, Gucci late 2020. Uh, they went there so influential, maybe gave brands the permission to be louder and prouder about uh, this move and, and this adoption of resale. Um, maybe while they were doing it on the slide before with a real reel or selling their unsold merch that way. Product, not
1: merch. (laughs) It's definitely less stigmatized. And, and like, I think the consumer has always been more into it than the brands. But I feel like now even the brands are not really as embarrassed to, like, say they're doing it. You know, I, I think there's much more of an acceptance of it.
0: Totally. Let's go to digital fashion. Uh, second big story of the year. It definitely took off. We're seeing this in various forms. Whether that is NFTs, whether that is um, teaming with Roblox for an experience. Maybe you're doing some sort of a, uh, a filter effect or something where you're you're enabling influencers to to wear digital clothing. It's a sustainability play. It's an innovation play. Um, Gosh, what were I guess the big stories under digital fashion as you see it?
1: So, Sophia and I just talked about this on the the last weekend review of the year, uh, but I, I think a big one was Nike acquiring Artifact. Um, you know, if you go back to the beginning of the year, February or so, um, I think Artifact was one of the first um, co- companies in the in the middle of the Venn diagram between like crypto NFT and fashion to make a big splash. They started selling virtual sneakers. They've, they're like less than two years old and they've already ballooned so much in in price. And to go from, you know, being brand new a year ago to being acquired by Nike, you know, less than two years later is, is a pretty big deal. Um, also side note, I did not realize that I was saying artifact wrong. It's spelled R-T-F-K-T, and I thought it was something completely different.
0: I know, <laughs> you're very... blowing my mind. I was like, it's artifact?
1: It's artifact, and I'm glad I looked it up because I was fully going to call it rat fucked, Like to be <laughs> honest. That's what I thought it was. And, <laughs> Who said that? <laughs> yeah, and so I'm very glad that I looked it up. It's artifact. Um, but But there's so many examples. I mean, like, everyone wanted to get in on nfts specifically this year um there were a million like you know like jeff staple did a bunch of nft stuff a lot of streetwear and sneaker adoption of nfts which is not surprising to me because it's like exactly the kind of thing that sneaker people love like scarcity and exclusivity and like the art style is just very clearly going for like a young like sneakerhead kind of person um so I, I don't think it wasn't surprising to me that streetwear and and that like kind of world embraced it faster, followed closely by luxury, which is always kind of like trying to chase whatever sneakerheads are into. Um, so so that's sort of how I saw the the um, the arc of it. You know, it started. I think at the end of 2020, it was like just starting to bubble up in like the sneaker kind of world. Beginning of 2021, it exploded. There was, um, not fashion, but that guy Beeple like sold the $69 million NFT. And even though that's art, it's, uh, still, I feel like there's a lot of crossover between streetwear and like street art, like people like Takashi Murakami and, and, um, cause and stuff like that. All those things, like, sell huge on StockX and, and stuff like that. So even though that's not fashion, I still count that as part of that kind of world. And then now, less than a year later, like, every mainstream brand and and like giant corporation is all trying to do it. So um, that's sort of the, the trajectory, as I've observed.
0: Totally. I mean, it's I think it's bigger. Uh, there are bigger, I guess, opportunities or maybe not so but i keep i keep comparing it to like 2021 for 2021 the metaverse for fashion is what tiktok was for 2020 in that particularly our coverage and and how brands are interested in in the content and in discovering what other brands are doing like should i be doing this should i go be going there. I want to know about strategies. Our stories on the metaverse, it, it was very much about like TikTok last year where it was like everybody's reading it, really like latching on to strategies and wanting to learn more. Gosh, I talked to uh, Christina Wouton from Roblox and she was it was another example of Gucci going there early and um, she kind of called them out as somebody that did it right in that um, they brought an experience, their Gucci garden to the space, and it was an opportunity to to explore the brand, uh, buy skins. They teamed with a um, a Roblox creator, and something it just stood out in her mind. It had twenty million. Um, I not It was only a two week initiative, so they had twenty million. Do you call it viewers, gamers, <laughs> people that users, that, users yeah. <laughs> that took part in that? But yeah, they're always forward. Rebecca Minkoff, I think you wrote about back around her her um, fashion show, I think it was in February, um, released NFTs, which again, she always tries to do something innovative and forward timed with that fashion show. So, you know, the, the innovators are going there. Um, it's only a matter of time before everybody else, I guess, trickles in and um one thing that we're also seeing is that everybody's kind of tiptoeing in i mean mm-hmm. um where they're doing something that's physical and digital at the same time um as part of a big grand release whether that's yes um a physical merch that that reflects the the digital skins and you can get it both ways. Or I saw an, in, an interesting thing, Alpha Industries, who is behind all of the the official, I would say, military gear um, for, for decades and decades. Um, now they're doing fashion, fashion a fashion brand, um, but they're linking with, oh my gosh, Call of Duty. I couldn't think of it, um, where um, they're within the game, but also you have to buy their coat or their jacket. There There's a product that's linked to it to, uh, I guess, get the info or get the the skew or get the I don't know digits to to be able to go on to the next level, and it, it comes from an actual product IRL. So that was an interesting play to me.
1: Yeah, definitely. I'm mean, something I think about with the metaverse, and and I know it's like early days, like you said, everyone's tiptoeing into it. But the what what I feel purely based on just instinct is that I don't want to use a metaverse that the only purpose of its existence is just for me to like buy stuff. And so something like Roblox, which is like a game first, you know, people use Roblox because there's stuff to do in it. There's, it's like, or Fortnite is a good example. Like the reason hundreds of millions of people play Fortnite is not because they're like, wow, I can't wait to like interact with my favorite brands and purchase like, you know, they play Fortnite to play Fortnite. And then on top of that, there is, you know, this ability to, you know, you can monetize that. But um, so so places like Roblox or Fortnite to me have so much more promise than like, you know, a generic like metaverse that purely exists to just like buy stuff and walk around. Yeah. Um, and, and and I feel like I've seen some of those that I think really are misguided because there, there was something called Second Life from years ago, which I think is still running. That was sort of an early version of this and that it was a game and it was sort of billed as a game because like the metaverse didn't really exist but it's kind of you you just sort of walk around and like talk to people like there's not really much of a game to it (laughs) and so much like metaverse stuff I see coming out now I'm like why would I use this like what is the what you know what I mean there was um a there was an interview that um I'm gonna forget who the journalist was, but um, with someone from Facebook and they conducted the interview in the metaverse and it was like two cartoony avatars, like sitting at a desk, like talking to each other. And I'm like, why don't you just call somebody? And they were like, <laughs> oh, they're like, this is great. Cause like, because of COVID, like, we don't have to be in the same room. And I'm like, you can use a phone. You can use like, you know, that's not solving any problem. And I feel like a lot of metaverse stuff to me seems like a solution in search of a problem. You know, I'm like, what's the point of using this so anyway long story short i'm being long-winded but something like Fortnite, which like has a purpose it is a game it's fun to play and then on top of that you can layer in all this metaverse stuff like i feel like that has a lot more promise than you know some like obscure like social interaction thing that where you just walk around and buy stuff
0: i hear that for sure the final take of of uh digital fashion that you know, has potential. I mentioned kind of the AR filters for influencers, for sampling. Um, Farfetch teamed with DressX to to do this with Balenciaga and Kate and Off-White and some of these bigger brands. Um, DressX, we just featured in our Glossy 50. Um, there's definitely opportunity there for brands. Right now, if you go on their website and you click down on designers, really those feature that you can buy a digital look and wear it maybe on on a platform. Um, it's, it's designers that are, I guess, digital designers. It's not, you won't see like a Balenciaga there now, but there's definitely, you know, potential in that space. I think that's where it will go. Last but not least, brands got unexpectedly chummy with each other. <laughs> um, tell mm-hmm. me some of the highlights that you saw there.
1: Yeah, so, okay, so uh, I'm going to tell you one that I think is, again, just because I wrote a story on this recently, it's it's on my mind. But um, we, I think in one of our first Week in Review episodes, you and I talked about Fendachi. You know, that was the Fendi-Versace crossover from, I think, September. It was a big deal. Everyone was really excited. I, I think it was technically was called, like, The Swap, and Fendachi was just sort of the nickname for it. But it was like... Fendi, designed by um, Donatello Versace, and Versace designed by Kim Jones. They sort of traded there. And what was notable at the time is that these are, like, different companies, and and more notably, they're owned by different, like, gigantic luxury holding companies. Um, And I think it's much more common for, like, the creative people at these brands are very chummy, they have no problem working together, but they're their parent companies are much stricter and and much more um, unwilling to like do fun stuff like this and so again maybe just because this is on my mind I was thinking about how how much control and influence the creative director at a modern luxury brand has and how I think if this was if it was up to the CEOs entirely a collaboration like that probably wouldn't happen but Kim Jones and Donna Tella Versace know each other they respect each other and and I'm I'm, I would guess that that collaboration probably came from that connection as opposed to some sort of calculated business move made by some pencil pusher somewhere. You know what I mean? I, I, that, so that was a notable one to me just because what it says about um, brand, brands at, at that level, um, at that high level, like being willing to cross boundaries in a way that maybe they wouldn't have a couple years ago.
0: Agree, definitely. Luxuries walls coming down. Uh, like you said, with the with the other uh, stories of the year, streetwear obviously has an influence here. Uh, there's been collaborations left and right with uh, teaming with I don't know kids cartoons or whatever the most random um, areas where there's no stuffiness there or no no big rules. Um I would say uh we've talked a little bit about Gucci and how they're doing this as well. I talk about Gucci every news story. I'm sorry, but man, I just love them. Um <laughs> but um teaming with Colina Strada um for like Gucci Fest also selling emerging designers on Gucci Vault which is a newer initiative. Um so they're doing that Gucci Balenciaga was Gucci Balenciaga was that this year i think that was this year i
1: think so yeah
0: yeah totally which um again very influential um we also talked on Weekend review about fendi and skims um yeah
1: and that's a, and that's a cross category one as well you know as addition in addition to being like brands from different like kind of holdings companies they're they're also like that that's like a high low kind of collaboration in a way that i think was i mean obviously like you said the luxury brands will collaborate with like anybody but um i i thought that one was notable just because it was like crossing between these two you know is, isn't isn't skim supposed to be like kind of accessible or something i don't know i've it never is. bought any skims
0: i was i thought it was a little bit um curious because i was i didn't know i guess maybe the point of it because it wasn't really an opportunity for um fendi to sell Dabble in a more affordable space because you know the dresses were still like a thousand dollars. I it, it was still very pricey, the collaboration. So, um, mm-hmm. not sure about that. T- tell me about Yeezy Gap. That's not like a one off deal, like, this is yeah, ongoing. That,
1: that's a, that's a long term, like, big, big deal. I think it was like a 10 year deal or something like that. Um, but yeah, th- that one's interesting. Um, so I was thinking about this. Kanye Kanye and Yeezy specifically have always been, or at least he always talks about like accessibility. You know, there was the whole thing where like everyone who wants a pair of Yeezys should be able to get one. And there was this whole thing where at first it was like super, super limited and they were selling, they were reselling for like three times the price and stuff. I'm talking like the original Yeezy sneakers. And then Kanye, I think like, was talking about this accessibility thing they upped the production a lot and like made way more yeezys and i remember a bunch of sneaker people telling me at the time that it sort of tanked the value a little bit because there's just more of them and i just think it's interesting how I, i think there's a little bit of a conflict there like you like yeezy again the the sneaker the the sneakers with adidas i'm talking about are like very like they are seem made for like the exclusive sneakerhead kind of world. And so when Kanye talks about wanting them to be accessible and have everyone have a pair that like goes against the entire philosophy of that type of product. Um, And the, the gap thing I think is similar in that it's like, obviously it got, it caused a lot of hype. Um, There's only two products out, which is the round jacket and the perfect hoodie, both of which, by the way, I think look very cool like just a business stuff aside, like I have not always loved um, Kanye's like non footwear clothes. Um, <laughs> but I think both of these like look sick. I, I would love to have both of them. Um, Kanye, if you're listening, but it, <laughs> I feel like they are priced sort of excessively. And like, there's the whole thing like, yeah, he's working with gap, like wants it to be available to everybody, but it's still like impossible to get. And they're still reselling for like three times the price. So I feel like that's, uh, uh for, for Yeezy, whether it's the shoes or the, the Gap line, like I feel like they got to figure out what it's going to be. Or maybe they'll just maybe he'll just keep talking about accessibility and continue to make expensive, inaccessible, limited <laughs> stuff and just be fine with that cognitive dissonance. Who knows? Um, but that's that was like a notable thing about that collaboration to me.
0: On the beauty side, this is also going on. Um, Sephora and Coles, Ulta, Target. You'll, I'm sure you'll hear that a lot on the beauties. Um, You're in review, um, but yeah, there there are no rules anymore. I also wanted to mention Tiffany, uh, Tiffany and Co. We've talked a, a lot about um, the cool factor and and what they're they're trying to to come, become relevant or more relevant to to a younger uh, cooler audience, I guess. Um, and yeah, I'm curious to see ahead. how,
1: how that's going because like, I, I'm a big fan of Ruba who's the creative director there. Like, I think she's really smart and I think a lot of their branding has been smart recently, but I'm, I'm like not a Tiffany's customer. I never bought anything from them. So it's I, I, it's hard for me to say, but like, I'm curious to see if that is that kind of rebrand from her is paying off for them. Um, I, I don't know. I too. I'm just. I don't know if there's any results out there yet. But um, maybe ne- that's something we could talk about next year. Is like whether that's working out for them.
0: Yeah, one year in, that would be a great story because you go in there, the collaborator, I guess, in terms of who they're getting in bed with, which is a little bit like if you haven't been on Tiffany's maybe social channels and you go on their Instagram now, it's a little jarring to see it filled with like Haley Bieber, and it's just it, it feels weird. <laughs> I must say, um, but yeah, and. Outside of product and, uh, I guess, marketing collaborations, we're also seeing more collaboration in terms of um, brands coming together in the name of sustainability. They're not kind of um, holding their secrets tight in terms of what they're doing to make progress in that space. It's kind of like, um, what do they say? One – Something, raise all ship sails.
1: <laughs> a rising tide. A rising tide raises all ships. Thank you,
0: Danny. That's how it goes. <laughs> we also had um, Dao Yichao from um, Public School um, on our Glossy 50 and really talking about how designers came together in the name of a cause, which was. Um, it was so important and crucial this year, um, Stop Asian Hate, where Prabal and Philip Lim, um, there's just more collaboration and it for good. Um, and all, we talked about that last year with, um, I think it was Brian Berger who brought um, brands together yeah. in terms of um, kind of a – I don't know, pandemic. They had, like, a
1: support group kind of, like... um, Yeah, yeah, like a support group kind of thing they would meet on Zoom. Like, he he and a bunch of other uh, DTC brand founders and stuff. I was also thinking... Speaking of Glossy 50, I talked to Hannah Kajimura, who's the head of sustainability at Allbirds. And a lot of times I talk to brands and they like have some program that they're working on. And they're like, we want like every brand to use this thing we're making. And a lot of times it's like, okay, no brand is going to use your thing. Like they want to use their own thing. Um, But the Allbirds has a, they print the carbon footprint of every like product that they make on the product. So If you buy a pair of Allbirds shoes, it has the carbon footprint in it. Um, like a, based on this metric they have, and they genuinely made all of their tools for calculating that available online. And it's not like, it's not like a Allbirds platform that you have to log into or anything. It's like just a PDF, like with all the or, or a series of PDFs and and tools and stuff. So it's like genuinely anybody can just take it, and you don't like you don't have to pay Allbirds, you don't have to do anything. And I I think something like that that's like collaborative in a genuine way as opposed to like oh we made this platform and we want other brands to use it but like they have to pay us or something you know like i said no one's going to use that um but Allbirds, i think really did go out of their way to make something that's like genuinely anyone can just go on their site and like download these tools and like you know start calculating your own carbon footprint which i think is good if you're a a small brand maybe and you're trying to do like sustainability and you want to make that part of the uh the story or part of the marketing like that's a genuinely really helpful and again totally free no strings attached thing to use so so things like that i feel like i've i've noticed a lot um and and i think the pandemic just made people a little more open to just working together and not having it be a big deal
0: let's move on so much collaboration there so we're gonna talk our fave stories to kind of end with the bang what what was sexy to us this year what got us excited uh, what would you say
1: So I'm going to pick a sort of of out-of-the-box one, and then I will explain why I think this is notable. In September, um, I got a tip from actually uh, another uh, reporter at Digiday, Max Willens, who told me that the Wirecutter, which is the New York Times sort of product review consumer recommendation kind of publication, had a job posting for a style editor. Um, Interesting because they mostly, I think, are known for reviewing tech and kitchen stuff and, you know, more technical kind of things like that, but had never really done a lot of fashion or style. Um, And so I got in touch with them and it turned out actually they were, they were and are putting a lot more investment into style and fashion coverage. Um, They, they're hiring people to do it. They've been, they've had a sort of they soft launched a style section on the Wirecutter site um, a couple months before that, um, I think over the summer. And uh, so we just talked about how they observed this strong desire among their readers for scientific kind of reviews of of clothes, um, which I think is Generally, kind of hard to do because it's so subjective, and and that's one of the. They told me that like that's one of the reasons they had kind of steered clear of it in the past is because it's a lot easier to review like headphones than it is to review a dress or something. But I think it speaks to the fact that a lot of people, especially younger consumers, I think like want like genuine like sort of detailed knowledge of like how something is made. And like, so one of the things Wirecutter did was they reviewed the, the good American, like one size fits all jeans. Um, and, and like had like some objective quote unquote, like as objective as you can be, uh, analysis of like how these jeans actually fit. Um, and they, they do accessories, they started doing glasses, like, and, and I think that speaks to how, you know, fashion is, um, is subjective. Like it's very style focused. It's personal style. Um, but it is a product as well. And I think a lot of people really value, you know, seeing the specs of something, even if it's just jeans, like how much, how stretchy is it really? Like how, you know, um, which you could probably point to a lot of TikTok people who, who have gotten popular doing kind of similar things like, you know, getting a big haul of clothes from somewhere and going through one by one and like talking about the pros and cons and stuff. Um, so anyway, that was just notable to me. And I, I think Wirecutter getting into style is maybe not like the most earth-shattering news of the year, but I, I think there's a lot of interesting connotations and currents that that signals to.
0: I would agree. And it almost reminds me of like Glossy when we started like with a focus on fashion, luxury, and technology. We expanded to beauty because more innovation uh, was happening there and um, it was moving faster. And now nice to see it kind of circle back to fashion where there, um this – Category um, is doing more in terms of in terms of all the things we talked about today, um, NFTs and digital fashion, and, and it's just like it's an exciting time for the industry. Um, I would say that my my big story of the year was. Again, not the mo- most earth-shattering, but all every brand, it seems, left and right, high, low, um, getting into the home category. Um, I just had mm. Cleo Bella's um, Angela O'Brien on the podcast. They're going to expand to home in the coming year. But this year alone, like Altazara and um, Jonathan Saunders, mostly with throws and pillows, but then um, Sarah Flint getting into table linens and Tanya Taylor getting into tableware. It said something to the effect, for me, Like, you know, I'm a fashion girl. Like I like to, that's what I do to like remain inspired is buy clothes and put together outfits. So that kind of moved to the home space um, in the last year, in the last two years, like that's how people got their fix, I think, in terms of style while you're stuck at home. Um, and to me, you know, brands are safeguarding for the future. And a lot of that means like diversification in the supply chain or um, where you're not really stuck to one channel or one factory or what have you. Um, but this is a way that it seems they're safeguarding it, um but Gosh, against like kind of huge shifts in consumer behavior, where um, if people aren't buying fashion, they have something another um, another category where people can lean into, and they can still keep that cash flowing. I would say.
1: <laughs> yeah, and and I think you could point to one of the other trends we talked about, which is resale. Um, I don't know if it was this year, but the real real like does a ton of business in in home decor. I think a couple of the other resale places have, at, who who started with fashion have branched into to home stuff as well. So I don't know if that was all this year, but I definitely have noticed a lot of that in the resale space, too.
0: For sure. Well, if we're going to stay home, it better look good. <laughs> anyway,
1: I have spent so much money on home stuff this year or and last year as well. It's ridiculous. But you know what? My home is a lot prettier than it was pre-pandemic.
0: Oh, your apartment looks good. Oh, my God. Danny, this is so fun. <laughs> Happy it year end. We did it. Woo! <laughs> Thank you, Jill. And thanks for having me.